Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, what caused the latest flash crash? There was an underlying theme for this, which explains why the pound ended up lower on the day and indeed lower still since. And what's the best formula to win a Nobel Prize in economics? Prizes that both look at tangible microeconomic questions and which also point out places in economics where markets don't work exactly as we might want them to. So first, in the early hours of Asian trading last Friday, the pound saw a sudden unexpected plunge in value, a flash crash. It had recovered most but not all of the loss by the following morning. Computing systems, human error and, of course, Brexit have all been blamed. But what did cause the crash? And if it was just a glitch, why did the pound not climb back to its pre-crash value? I'm joined now by our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan. Hello. Philip. First of all, can we rule out human error? What about computing systems? Well, I don't think it was human error. The pound was 2% lower in the course of the day, which is a significant move on its own. So if it had been a fat finger trade, it would have resumed its old level. Computer systems almost certainly are involved because a lot of trading is done with computer systems. And in a thin market, which Asia would be for the pound, they can have a big impact. So what these computer systems do, algorithmic trading, as they're known, is they often have set levels at which they might sell an asset and those levels can then feed on each other as one program sells, that forces the asset price down, causing other programs to reach the level at which they would sell and so on. And we've seen this in the past, in the equity market, we've seen it in the bond market, this time it was in currencies. But there was an underlying theme for this, which explains why the pound ended up lower on the day and indeed lower still since. The markets have become increasingly concerned about the tone of the British government's approach to Brexit. So in the aftermath of the EU referendum, the pound fell sharply. Then it was hovering for quite a while around 130 to the dollar. And it's now down at 123, 124 and lower also against the euro. And that's because the government seems to be opting for the hard Brexit, in which it emphasises the political aims of reducing immigration and sovereignty against the economic aims of maintaining membership of the single market with the free trading privileges that implies. Indeed, this, of course, came at the end of a week when here in Britain we'd had the Conservative Party Congress conference where they'd all been talking about the implications of Brexit and implying it would be a hard Brexit. But was there a specific event externally that triggered the first of these these trades that the algorithms then all followed? There were some comments from uh, Francois Hollande, the French president, saying that uh, he thought far- hard Brexit would happen and that, that the French would take a tough line. It's hard to be 
absolutely sure, but there are certainly some of these algorithms use headlines on social media, Twitter, Facebook, wire services as the basis for their trade. So it may be that a sudden flurry of news about that caused one program to start selling. And as I say, you get a ripple effect. And I think the underlying concern, though, is that Britain has been regarded for 30, 40 years now as an open trading nation that welcomes foreign capital. So in the course of that Conservative Party conference, we saw uh, headlines about uh, companies being asked to list their foreign workers, about the government intervening more in industry and possibly blocking foreign takeovers, and also about the government going on anti-business trade on the issue of tax and talking about, you know, if you're if you're not a citizen of one country, you're a citizen of nowhere. And all of that was such a change in tone, I think, compared with what the markets were used to under David Cameron and before them, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, that I, I think it just caused a shock. Something you said is, is quite remarkable. We're saying that these algorithms now read newspaper headlines and tweets and make human-like decisions based on those? Yes. I mean, not all of them. We don't know often what the program looks at because they're secret, they're proprietary. People don't want you to know. But that's what we hear, that some of them do that. That's one of the ways that trading systems try and gain an advantage over other systems. And The Economist looks at these things ourselves. We look at how often the word recession appears in headlines or inflation appears in headlines to get an idea of what sentiment is. Presumably, the implication of that is that this is not the last flash crash, because between now and Brexit, whenever it actually happens, we're going to see an awful lot of alarming headlines. Absolutely. And it's not the last flash crash, not just in sterling, but in a whole range of things. So we had one in 2010 in equities. We had one uh, in 2015 in German bonds. And these things happen because liquidity is less than it used to be. So in the aftermath of the crisis, banks aren't taking on as big positions when they're market making. That means that if you want to get rid of a big position, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever, then it's hard to find someone on the other side of the trade. And that means you can get a big move in prices. And is there anything the authorities in any of these countries can do about this? Or do they now have to live with this as a, a fact of life in present day markets? I think they have to live with it because the trade-off is if you want to protect the banks from trading losses, because banks are highly leveraged institutions that can go bust and you have to rescue them, then you're going to have to have less liquid markets. And probably that's a good trade-off to have because, yes, the pound has fallen suddenly, but we haven't heard that anybody's gone bust as a result. So markets are just finding their level. People describe trading in markets now as a bit like being a, a soldier or a security guard. 95% of the time is quite boring, and then 5% of the time it's sheer panic. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see moments where the markets are very calm and then a sudden move in very volatile conditions. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood columnist, thank you very much. And if you want to share your thoughts on anything we discussed today, do get in touch. We're on Twitter, at Economist Radio, or send an email to radio at economist.com. And finally, yesterday morning, the Nobel Prize for Economics was announced. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel to Oliver Hart and Bengt Holmström for their contributions to contract theory. That footage was courtesy of NobelPrize.org. I'm joined now by our free exchange columnist and our designated Nobel economics watcher, Ryan Arendt. Ryan, first of all, who are Oliver Hart and Bengt Holmström? 
Well, they are uh, two excellent economists who specialize in the study of, of contracts. And Oliver Hart is, uh, is, is a British economist who is, is working at Harvard University. Bengt Holdstrom is a Finnish economist who is at MIT, so they're both in the Boston area. And basically since the 1970s, these, these guys have been doing pioneering work looking at how people contract to try to solve various coordination problems. And it's, their work has been incredibly influential, and uh, they've been sort of on the list of potential Nobelists for, for quite some time now. So it's not really a surprise, but they weren't at the top of the list of many of the forecasts I saw for who might win. Not at the top of the list, but they were considered enough of, of a likely uh, pair that uh, I think both candidates woke up early this morning just on the off chance that the phone call from Sweden would come. The judges, I think, mentioned in particular the, that their work laid an intellectual foundation for public policy in, in areas such as bankruptcy and constitutional law. I mean, how, how important in those areas has it been? Well, it's been, it's been hugely important. Uh, I mean, I think economists have known for, for ages, for centuries really, since Adam Smith at least, that contracts were very important in facilitating cooperation between individuals that you couldn't you know you couldn't start a, a company or make a long-term investment uh, in many cases without having contracts to support that that sort of cooperation but economists also recognized that there were all sorts of issues that they didn't really have clear clear ways to think about so if you contract with someone and and promise to pay them a certain amount based on some measure that person is bound to try to game the measurement, their incentives may not be perfectly aligned with, with your own. And so contracts have to try to take those things into account. And what uh, what Mr. Hart and, and, and Holmstrom worked on was bringing a degree of rigor to these sorts of questions that hadn't been there before. And that allowed all sorts of different areas of economic inquiry to open up where, where economists could come in and sort of begin to fill in the blanks. And some of that was related to financial contracts and bank loans. Uh, some of it was related to insurance markets. But then it also spoke to issue about executive pay, about public versus private ownership of various industries, and, and it really has quite broad applications. So it's of relevance both to public and private sectors. And will their winning the prize mean that they become more influential? Well, I'm not sure they'll become more influential necessarily. I mean, I think they've begun these sort of fields of endeavor that have led to quite a lot of research. I mean, their, their work is applicable to questions that we're considering today. Uh, one of the things the prize committee mentioned was research looking at the incentives of those managing publicly owned prisons versus privately owned prisons. And their research showed that, for instance, conditions in private Leon prisons were bound to be worse because of the strong incentive those managers had to cut costs. And that's influencing a debate in America right now over the use of private prisons. So I think we, we may be quicker to kind of connect their names to the issues where the research was already having an effect. I think one thing that w might be interesting, though, uh, to note is that the Nobel Prize Committee has been sort of favoring these kinds of prizes a lot in recent years, prizes that both look at tangible microeconomic questions and which also point out places in economics where markets don't work exactly as we might want them to. And they've also been neglecting macroeconomics a little bit. So I think there is some sense in which the choice of these two gentlemen as prize winners might cause those picking which sorts of subfields to study to say, you know what, I'm going to go into these more small-scale, tangible, but very important kinds of questions rather than, than something else. Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.